This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Hi, Jen White here. Before we start the show, the end of the year is coming up and we're reflecting a bit here at 1A. We've loved bringing you shows about pretty much everything in 2023, from interviews with your favorite authors and celebrities to going in-depth on the latest news stories. We've poured our heart into every show, and we're excited about everything we'll dig into in 2024, hopefully with your financial support. This is where we want to say a big thank you to our 1A listeners and anyone listening who already donates to public media. Your support makes independent and accurate journalism possible. We prioritize facts, context, and different perspectives, and we're beholden to no one except you, the public. And to anyone out there who isn't a supporter yet, right now is the time to get behind the NPR network, especially with the NPR newsroom gearing up for an important election year. Supporting public media now takes just a few minutes and makes a real difference in what's possible moving forward. Make a tax-deductible donation now at donate.npr.org slash 1A. And thanks. Hey, it's Sarah. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Santa isn't the only one who's been busy this time of year. Colorado's Supreme Court delivered its own December surprise on Tuesday. But will its decision to bar former President Trump from the state's Republican primary ballot backfire? He uh, feeds on grievance, just like a fire feeds on oxygen. And this is going to end up as a grievance that helps him. The Colorado court stayed its decision until January 4th, so the U.S. Supreme Court can weigh in. That's where we will start. But first, I want to introduce our panel. Nancy Cook is senior national political correspondent at Bloomberg News. Nancy, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Libby Casey, senior news anchor covering politics and breaking news at The Washington Post. Libby, it's good to have you back. Thanks so much, Sarah. And Arthur Delaney is a reporter at HuffPost, and he is with us here in the studio. Hey, Arthur, good to see you. Great to be here. So, as I said, let's start with the 14th Amendment in this Colorado case. Libby, if you could, remind us what we heard from Colorado's Supreme Court this week. What is the legal argument for disqualifying the former president from the Republican primary ballot? Yeah, so this ruling is based on a provision of the 14th Amendment, which dates back to the aftermath of the Civil War. And it was designed to keep Confederates from returning to power. And it says that no person shall hold any office, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution, and then engage in insurrection or rebellion. And so on this narrow four to three decision, uh, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Trump counts for that, that he's disqualified from running for the Republican primary because of his actions leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Now, you know, Sarah, this past year, we have so often heard words like unprecedented, historic, 
but they are really appropriate here um, because this has never happened before. Uh, there are some really important fundamental questions of interpretation here, ranging from whether this actually applies to presidents, because it, it names other offices like the vice president, um, whether Trump did, engage, did indeed engage in an insurrection, and if it's up to this court to decide that, and whether the attack on the Capitol was seen as an insurrection in the first place. Um, now, the majority of the Colorado Supreme Court justices said this case ticked all of those boxes, and they did say that they don't take this decision lightly. I do want to mention, in terms of practical implications, you mentioned there is this stay until January 4th. If an appeal is filed to the Supreme Court and it's under consideration, that stay will continue, and there's every expectation that Trump's team will indeed appeal this, likely next week. Um, and so there's a large chance that when the Colorado ballots need to get printed. The state says that has to happen by January 5th. It has to get figured out that his name could indeed still appear on this ballot. Yeah, so a bit of a, a bit of a deadline they're facing. You know, Arthur, one of the fascinating things about this decision, one of the interesting wrinkles, I think, is that it cites an argument from more than a decade ago from then judge, now Justice Neil Gorsuch, in another case. What did he say and how much pressure does this put on the Supreme Court? That case had to do with uh, another uh, 14th Amendment candidate situation where somebody was uh, running for president, an obscure person who nobody ever heard of. Uh, but Gorsuch was an appeals judge. And uh, he ruled at the time that because the guy was not uh, a natural born citizen, uh, which is another requirement uh, for running for president, that he, he couldn't under the uh, 14th Amendment. And uh, I think they just put that in there to flatter Gorsuch and, and get attention for it. I don't think it will sway him. I think this is a, such a completely different situation, uh, and the Supreme Court will probably side with Trump. Though it, it, it's 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 unpredictable, but uh, that Always. that was yeah uh, that was the idea of of uh, putting Gorsuch in there. So, Nancy, the, the legal arguments are getting a lot of attention, of course, but I want to talk more about the political context. We heard a moment ago from former Attorney General Bill Barr, who suggested that this might actually work in Trump's favor. What do you think? Well, I talked to a number of Trump um, campaign officials this week about this very question, and they feel very confident that it will work in their favor. What we have seen time and time again with um, all of Trump's legal problems in Georgia, in New York, with the indictments, is that they and, and he have very successfully turned these to a political advantage for him politically. He uses them to talk about uh, you know his own set of grievances, how Democrats are unfairly uh, persecuting him, how people are coming after him, you know, how he is fighting for people. So he sort of wraps it up in this theme at rallies and campaign events that he is fighting and taking these legal challenges on behalf of his supporters. They love this. And so <clears throat> he has really turned all these legal challenges to his advantage. And I think that they're going to try to lump this Colorado ballot case in with that as well. Now, Donald Trump's Republican rivals have also been weighing in. Here's some of their reaction. There was no trial on any of this. They basically just said, what, you can't be on the ballot? I mean, how does that work? I will beat him fair and square. I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being president of the United States by the voters of this country. We heard there from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, followed by U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. You know, Nancy, Christie has centered his campaign for the Republican nomination on going after 
Trump. So I wonder why he appears to be defending Trump here. Well, I think that he is he's he's basically saying that he thinks that uh, you know, voters should decide to not give Trump a second term, not the courts. And and I think that he was pretty clear on that at campaign events this week. Um, you know, he was a longtime prosecutor. He has a law degree. You know, he really views himself as somebody who, you know, really is steeped in the law. He did want to run the Department of Justice under President Trump and was not, you know, never given that opportunity. But I think he's making the argument that he would rather have voters not give him a chance, and that would be a more legitimate way to do it than have courts decide. Quick fact check on Ron DeSantis. There was a trial in Colorado. (laughs) Trump's lawyers were there and made oral arguments and everything, and they said, well, it wasn't an insurrection. It was just a little riot. So I don't think that this is fair. You know, do you think, Arthur, that that there's a way that these other candidates, Haley, DeSantis, Christie, might be able to use this to their advantage? Well, if you were running for president against Donald Trump, you would think that things that are bad about him would be to your advantage. But since the Republican Party is essentially a a Trump personality cult, that's not what they're doing. Um, They are either trying to get positions in a a future Trump administration or hoping he randomly gets sick or dies and then they'll be left standing there. Uh, But they don't actually want to beat him. It's It's been very clear this whole time. I mean, I think some of them might want to beat him, but but doing that, as you said, in a in a party with these dynamics is very challenging. Right, They're, they want to beat him, but in some weird way where they don't actually oppose him at all, except to say that I would be even better than Trump at everything that Trump himself does. You know, Libby, states have always been able to set their own election rules, and that's kind of at the heart of this case. But that can make the process messy, and any functional democracy can only tolerate so much mess. Uh, I wonder, Libby, how how might that weigh on the minds of these justices as they consider this case? Well, you know, the Supreme Court can in no way like whistle past the graveyard of 2024 here. They are going to have to get very involved. There's going to be a collision of cases relating to Donald Trump and the 2024 election. Uh, There's already three issues now on their docket, including this one. But I want to point out a really other important one. The special counsel, Jack Smith, is looking for a quick decision from the Supreme Court right now uh, to figure out some very important questions relating to the basic prosecution of Donald Trump and uh, asking this question of whether or not Trump can actually be uh, tried. And the court could decide whether or not to take this case as soon as today. So this is all going to really snowball here in the next couple of weeks. And that first trial against Trump on the federal level is supposed to happen as soon as March. The longer Trump can delay this and draw this out, the more he wins and the more he gets leverage and he can just, you know, be in this complaining and persecution, you know, I am persecuted mode rather uh, than having the American people see his defense and um, the criminal prosecution against him, the actual facts of the case. We're talking with Libby Casey from The Washington Post, Nancy Cook from Bloomberg News, and Arthur Delaney from HuffPost. Lawyers for Donald Trump have also been busy on another case. On Wednesday, they asked the Supreme Court to avoid deciding for now whether he can claim immunity for actions he took challenging the 2020 presidential election result. Uh, As Libby just mentioned, the court filing was in response to special counsel Jack Smith's request asking the justices to circumvent the normal appeals court process. You know, Arthur, why the urgency here? Well, well, the, the Trump campaign does not want urgency uh, because they want this to take forever until he can make it go away when he becomes president again. Um, 
but the special counsel obviously wants this to hurry up and get done before the election. Now, he's not saying that in his court filings, and neither is the Trump campaign. They're not, they're not saying, we want this to go on forever so that Trump can become president again and tell the Justice Department to s- dismiss the case and the president can pardon himself. Nobody's saying that it's being left unsaid. But that's the obvious dynamic, and Jack Smith instead is saying this is just of the utmost importance. And, and the thing we're specifically talking about here is immunity. His lawyers have said because he was president when he did all that stuff trying to steal the election, it was official, it was his job, and you can't sue him for that. And, and the district court judge, Tanya Chutkin, said, that's ridiculous. We have presidents, not kings in this country. And so she's denied that. And it's on an appeal that is itself expedited. And Trump's lawyers say, let's just let the appeal happen instead of kicking up to the Supreme Court right away. Lots for the Supreme Court justices to consider in the coming weeks. And we'll talk more about it all in just a moment. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. On now to former President Donald Trump and some remarks, listeners may very well find offensive. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell certainly wasn't pleased. Are you comfortable with your party's leading presidential candidate referring to legal immigrants as people who are poisoning the blood of our country? Well, it strikes me that didn't bother him when he appointed Elaine Chow Secretary of Transportation. On Saturday, Trump told rally-goers in New Hampshire that immigrants were, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. President Biden's campaign countered that such rhetoric is parroting Hitler. So, Nancy, as the Iowa caucuses approach and the campaign heats up into early next year, how are these remarks being received by Republican voters? I do not think Republican primary voters are phased by this at all. You know, uh, former President Trump has been saying demeaning things about uh, immigrants for many, many years. And I think that he says it because it plays well with the Republican base. You know, you have to remember that he said this at a rally, um, you know, on this past weekend. And then he doubled down on it and said it again at a rally in Iowa on, I think, Wednesday night. And so, or I'm sorry, Tuesday. But he really, you know, he didn't back away from it at all. And he even joked like, oh, Democrats say that I got this from you know, Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, ha, ha, ha. And so it's really a, a theme that he is uh, doubling down on. And and I don't think that Republican voters, at least in these early primary states, are bothered by it. He has really built his campaign and his political career since 2016 on the whole premise of demagoguing immigrants and really going after them, making immigration a huge part of his platform. Um, I think the trick for him is that it will be hard for him to attract moderates, independents, suburban women, 
you know, that he's going to need to build a winning coalition if he wants to win in 2024 once he gets through the Republican primaries with this type of rhetoric. You know, when I've been on the campaign trail, immigration is an issue I hear about a lot from Republican voters. And I'm talking about not Trump voters, you know, Republican voters who attend uh, primary campaign events in places like New Hampshire, uh, who by definition are are usually at least open to somebody other than Trump. But but that language that he used is, you know, it's so evocative of, of frankly, Hitler's language. Now, Trump says he didn't, he's never even read Mein Kampf. I'm not sure if that matters or not. But he has a big lead in the Iowa polls, according to a CBS and YouGov poll earlier this month. He leads with 58% support, followed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 22. You know, Libby, is there any possibility for these polls to shift? A lot of these threats that Trump used to talk about were coming from the outside, the exterior. Now he's talking about threats coming from inside, right? Inside our own American system, rooting things out, rooting out the evil. Um, And I think part of the question that Democratic strategists have is at what point will people start to feel like, wow, he's hitting a little too close to home. This is actually getting personal now. And until people see it as personally really connecting with them and touching them, it doesn't seem to be phasing them. I want to double down on what Nancy said. I mean, this recent poll that came from the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and Media.com found that a lot of these statements actually make Republican primary voters in Iowa support him more. Um, Comments uh, like that Trump would authorize sweeping raids, giant camps, and mass deportations, 50% of those polled said that makes them support him more. 27% said it didn't change their opinion. The idea that Let's talk about politics now. The radical left thugs that live like vermin in the U.S. have to be rooted out. 43% of those polled said it makes them more likely to support Donald Trump. So at this point, along the lines of what Nancy said, um, it is not harming him among the electorate he needs to get through the primary process. You know, another person who can't seem to get out of the hot seat lately is former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Two Georgia election workers are again suing Giuliani for a defamation. The new lawsuit comes just days after he was ordered to pay $148 million in damages to the same two Georgia election workers he falsely accused of committing ballot fraud in 2020. Wandria Shea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, filed a new lawsuit against Giuliani after he told reporters last Friday that he would appeal the verdict and then repeated claims claims that the two women had committed election fraud. Here's Giuliani speaking to reporters last Friday. The absurdity of the number merely underscores the absurdity of the entire proceeding where I've not been allowed to offer one single piece of evidence in defense, of which I have a lot. So I am quite confident when this case gets before a fair tribunal, it'll be reversed so quickly it'll make your head spin. Now, Giuliani declined to testify in his own behalf at the trial, and he has since filed for bankruptcy. Arthur, what do you make of these latest developments? Well, filing for bankruptcy obviously is a way to get out of paying these women for defaming them. And he it, that he walked out of the courthouse and just defamed them again, and they sued him again. And he doesn't have any evidence that they committed election fraud. These are people who were just on a uh, like a surveillance video processing ballots and Giuliani and Trump randomly accused them of fraud. And uh, it ruined their lives. Right. They, they got deluged with threats, and they you know, wouldn't live in their houses. The FBI encouraged them to move. And uh, he doesn't have the decency to cut it out, so 
and they'll sue him again, and he'll lose again. I don't think that he'll prevail uh, because the evidence he has, no one's ever seen. Now, Nancy, this case is not Giuliani's only financial problem. He owes a lot of people money. What other cases has he been involved in lately, and how might those have led to this bankruptcy filing? Well, he's just involved in so many cases. And, and the problem is, is that he basically is going broke. I mean, you know, he is involved in cases in Georgia with Trump's election interference. Um, he's just facing a ton of legal problems. And, you know, he has had to sell his apartment in New York. He put his apartment on the market. Um, you know, I, I read this week that I think he's on the hook for anywhere from $100 million to $150 million in, in sort of bills that are due. He has legal bills that are mounting. He has, uh, you know, the, these this defamation suit that's, that's uh, also um, he has to be responsible for. But the thing to keep in mind is that even with the bankruptcy filing, it doesn't, it won't discharge these defamation uh So he will still be responsible for that. It won't shield his assets from that. But what it will do, the bankruptcy will slow down the payment, you know, and allow him to appeal. And, And I think that, you know, like Trump, I think his lawyers are hoping that by slowing it down and allowing him to, you know, appeal these things that it may, you know, he may never end up paying. I think that that's certainly part of their strategy. More than 400 Jewish facilities received false bomb threats this week, according to the Anti-Defamation League. This comes amid a spike of threats that made made against the Jewish community since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Libby, what do we know about where these threats are coming from? Yeah, well, um, the FBI says that this was a nationwide swatting spree, and swatting are those fake calls about an attack that has taken place. Um, And the FBI says they appear to be a coordinated effort by an entity based outside the United States. Now, uh, swatting, you know, means that no one was actually harmed, right? There was no bomb set off. There was no attack. But it is incredibly destabilizing. There were lockdowns. Communities that are already traumatized were put on edge. Um, There were congregations that had to evacuate Hebrew schools, preschools out of fear. And so this really does have an impact, Um, uh, especially as, as, you know, there was one synagogue in Boulder, Colorado that was in the middle of a Torah study class when they had had to leave and and you know f- fear for their lives. So this stuff does have a destabilizing impact. Um, looking at this broader, the ADL, the Anti Defamation League, says reports of anti Semitic incidents across the U.S. have soared in the two months since the October 7th Hamas attack. They call the rise unprecedented, the highest number of any two month period since they began tracking this in the late 70s. And a counterpoint to that is the Council on American Islamic Relations. So they have also seen a staggering rise in threats as well as attacks during that same period. Arthur, what does it mean for national security that these threats are believed to be coming, in many cases, from outside the United States? That's all the FBI said, that it's from outside the U.S. and they're all connected. They didn't say if it's uh, uh, an entity affiliated with a foreign government. So I don't know what the national security implication is. In general, it's terrible that somebody can this easily terrorize this many people just by placing phone calls, sending emails. Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, remains in the hot seat, this time for allegations that she may have plagiarized parts of her 1997 doctoral dissertation. 
Harvard announced on Wednesday that they found two instances of insufficient citation in her work and that President Gay will have to submit updates to her dissertation to provide proper quotations and citations. Now, this is after a Harvard review last week found two articles by Gay needed additional citation. Also on Wednesday, a congressional committee said it would expand its ongoing investigation into anti-Semitism at Harvard to include her academic papers. These allegations first appeared in conservative media outlets like the New York Post and the Washington Beacon. Nancy, why are conservatives laser-focused on on ousting Harvard President Claudine Gay? Well, I think that it because it would be such a victory for them. I mean, um, Elise Stefanik, a Republican representative from New York, and, and she's a member, uh, she's close to Donald Trump, you know, had that asked those pointed questions at that congressional hearing uh, recently that led to the ouster of the president of the University of Pennsylvania, who was a woman. And I think that Republicans see this as a doubling down. It's all part of a sort of a broader culture war that they have you know, against what they view as, um, you know, overly politically correct campuses, uh, campuses that are very focused on issues of diversity and inclusion. And by essentially forcing out the leaders of some of these top institutions, I think that they view it as a win and a message to other people that, you know, you can't be involved in this. And it's not just really conservative uh, publications and conservative people. I would argue that a lot of wealthy donors who may be Republican-leaning, have also really been heavily involved in all of the drama surrounding the university presidents and calling for the ouster. So it's been interesting because it's these two groups, sort of wealthy donors, um, you know, and conservative press and politicians that have really sort of gone after these university presidents from very high-profile places because they basically want to say, hey, we're taking leaders of these key prominent institutions out because we don't like what they stand for. And, you know, you could be next if you do this. And it's sort of a message to corporations, other academic institutions. You know, it's this fight over how people should conduct themselves. The Senate is leaving for the holidays without a deal on immigration. And that means that there is little hope for a military aid package to Israel or Ukraine anytime soon either. Libby, what immigration reforms did Senate Republicans want to see and why did they tie it to military aid for Ukraine? Well, it certainly worked um, because there has not been anything passed now. They've all gone home. And so Republicans, in a sense, did get their way. Now, not all Republicans are on board with this. You know, we did see uh, a, a joint message, a rare joint message come out from the two leaders of the Senate, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, saying that they are committed to passing legislation that would fund Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, also the southern border. They're basically saying, don't give up hope, even though we didn't get it done before the holiday. We'll be back in January to do this all over again. Um, But the Republicans who want to see movement on uh, the border were able to block that aid. And, you know, there have been some successes in the negotiations. Um, Democrats have conceded to some Republican requests. One of them is on the idea of asylum. Um, But Republicans are going after some other issues that Democrats say they are not going to move on. One is this question of how families and children are detained at the border. Um, Democrats are very concerned about Republicans' desires on that front. And there's another Republican proposal that would essentially restrict the president's authority to uh, exercise 
exercise parole rights um, in letting migrants into the country during international emergencies. We're going to see this all picked back up again in January. But usually right before a break, as all of you know, because you've covered Congress, there's this will they, won't they, they'll get something done before they leave. But this time, uh, the the sort of hanging uh, the sword over everyone of the deadline of the holidays just didn't finalize the deal. It's, it's possible that Republicans do not actually want a grand bargain on foreign aid and immigration because they, they said, sure, we'll, we'll get with this Ukraine aid. Just help us solve the most vexing political problem in American <laughs> politics for the past 10 years. And, and, uh, and if they did strike a bargain, they would no longer be able to bash Joe Biden for it for the rest of next year leading up to the 2024 election. So uh, count me skeptical that this that this will happen, though it's certainly it's possible. I want to quickly touch on another fight on Capitol Hill before we go to a break. After the Senate approved 11 four-star military promotions this week, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's blockade on military promotions is finally over. He'd been holding them up for the last 10 months to protest against the Defense Department's policy on abortion, which allows service members paid leave and travel reimbursement to seek reproductive health care, including abortions. Arthur, quickly, the Pentagon didn't change its policy on abortion, but what effect did Tuberville's blockade have on the military? Well, the Pentagon and Democratic and Republican senators have said all along that the blockade itself was very damaging to national security just because it made it harder for the military to do its work. People weren't in the jobs that they were supposed to be. People were doing two jobs at a time. So the the damage was done. It wasn't something that was concrete, um, like a base didn't blow up or anything, but I think it caused a lot of trouble for for officials in charge. A lot of delays. Here's an early holiday gift from the IRS. On Tuesday, everyone's favorite federal agency said it is waiving penalty fees for those who failed to pay back taxes totaling less than $100,000 per year for tax years 2020 and 2021. How many people qualify? Well, the move affects nearly 5 million people, businesses and tax-exempt organizations. All of them will be eligible for the relief starting this week which totals about a billion dollars. Stay with us. We've still got a lot to cover. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. 
Let's get back to the news roundup and we'll stick with politics. Congress may not be getting much done on immigration, but Texas, well, that is a different story. Biden's deliberate inaction has left Texas to fend for itself. The authors of the United States Constitution foresaw a situation when the federal government would be inattentive to states that faced challenges at their borders. And in response, they inserted Article 1, Section 10 to the United States Constitution to empower states to take action to defend themselves. And that is exactly what Texas is doing. And that was Texas Governor Greg Abbott speaking on Monday. Republican Governor Abbott signed three bills into law, one of which would give state law enforcement agencies the authority to arrest undocumented immigrants anywhere in the state. Nancy, tell us more about this law. What exactly will it allow law enforcement to do? How will it work? So basically it made... um Entering the state illegally a criminal offense, the law is slated to go into effect in March. And, and basically, it makes it, the, the law makes it a misdemeanor to enter or try to enter Texas from a foreign country at sort of any location. And what is so controversial about this is that, well, there's a lot of controversies around it, but one of the sort of key things is that immigration law is really the purview of Congress and the federal government. And it's not, uh, you know, it's it's not historically in the purview of governors. And so Abbott is basically trying to circumvent this. And, you know, he's arguing that President Biden is not doing enough about all of the crossings in Texas, the border crossings. And therefore, he is pa- trying to pass this law, or he has passed this law, um, and really saying, you know, we will take it upon ourselves to solve this problem. But but part of the issue is that when immigrants, you know, there are federal laws that say, you know, there's an asylum pr- process, immigrants can cross the border, they can request asylum. And so what he, Abbott's trying to do is sort of circumvent all those things and allow Texas authorities to basically arrest people and, and circumvent the federal process that's, you know, been around for years of coming illegally, but per- be requesting asylum. And and there are already a bunch of lawsuits challenging this. And, you know, Abbott has come under attack in the past for sending immigrants to Chicago. Local leaders there have accused him of human trafficking. So this, you know, there's just so much tension over this issue. Libby, what are the implications of this of this decision by Texas to make illegal immigration a state crime? Yeah. And, you know, talking about Chicago, the mayor there just lashed out at the governor of Texas because a five-year-old migrant boy who was staying in a shelter uh, fell ill and died. Now, that's under investigation as to what exactly happened. But, um, you know, there is so much loaded in this law. Um, The jurisdiction questions here are going to be essential. Uh, We haven't seen anything like this since Arizona had that, you know, show me your papers law, it was sort of called. Um, But there are real questions about just how Texas would enforce this. And we are seeing local law enforcement officers in in Texas say, you know, we're concerned about being accused of racial profiling. We're concerned about how we're actually going to enforce this. And we're concerned about where we're going to house people who've been arrested um, or who are going to be accused of this. And how are we going to get all of our other work done. Um, There is the thorny issue of the federal jurisdiction, and that's where a lot of the lawsuit challenges are going to live. They're going to live in that zone of federal versus state authority, um, and it will have to work its way up um, all the way, probably, um, you know, through the court process. Um, This is 
a question of human rights, but it's also a question of states' rights. Right. And advocacy groups, as you allude to, are already challenging Texas's new law. On Tuesday, El Paso County and two immigrant rights groups sued Texas officials, arguing it should be struck down because the federal government has sole authority over immigration policy. Arthur, how do you see this playing out? Well, uh, like Libby just said, Arizona did this in 2010, and the federal government sued them right away, and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. Federal laws are the supreme law of the land, and Greg Abbott is basically saying, please sue me, Joe Biden, and it's a way of drawing attention to the issue, and maybe he suspects that the more conservative Supreme Court would say something different than it did in 2012 when it ruled on this, but uh, I, I suspect that it won't. I want to move on to another state, another border state. On the other border, Minnesota is celebrating a new state flag this week. And on Tuesday, a special panel picked the final design, which includes an eight-pointed north star against a dark blue background abstractly shaped like the state. The flag will also have a solid light blue field on the right. Arthur, I'll go back to you. Why is Minnesota getting a new flag? Well, their old flag, like a lot of state flags, is a, a, like a blue field and a circle with a little drawing in the middle that you can't see at all. But if you do look at it, you, you notice that it shows a Native American like riding off into the sunset and a white settler tending to his farm with a gun nearby. And people are like, well, this is problematic, in addition to being aesthetically unpleasing. And so they, they went with something that's much more legible. Like you don't have to squint to see what it is, and it's not offensive to Native peoples. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem that is just endemic to state flags. I look at them at the Capitol in a particular tunnel, and, and lots of them have the same thing, where there's like a, little, a little drawing in the middle that you cannot make out at all. What is that? Yeah, and it's like people doing stuff. It's, it's, uh, so it's, a, I think, a huge improvement, just aesthetically, in addition to not being offensive. You know, one of our listeners wrote in to say that one measure of a successful flag design is whether you can sell boxer shorts with the flag logo. Yes. <laughs> the old flag, they say, fails this test, and I think the new flag will pass. It's the boxer shorts test. The new flag, you can see a guy's boxer shorts from far away and say, that guy's from Minnesota. That's right. And his boxers. And probably wearing them in the winter because I know how Midwesterners are with the cold. Uh, you know, we've been getting a lot of questions from listeners about something we talked about earlier, the Supreme Court and uh, former President Trump's legal woes. I have one more question for you, Nancy, about that. The Supreme Court is used to getting plenty of scrutiny, but the stakes seem very high as we head into the new year, as we've talked about with this Colorado case and the immunity case surrounding uh, former President Trump. That brings us to Clarence Thomas. Democrats are calling on Justice Thomas to recuse himself from this case. Why? And is there any chance that he will, Nancy? I don't think that he will. And, and uh, you know, I think people who watch the Supreme Court much closer than I do don't think that he will either. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, there would be reason to him for him to recuse himself. His wife, um, Ginny Thomas, was very intimately involved in trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election. She is close to Trump. She is close to Mark Meadows, who was his chief of staff in the White House, and she was very involved. Um, but we haven't seen Thomas before hint at any, any idea that he would recuse himself from anything that she would be related to or that she's touched on. You know, she's involved in a number of conservative causes. And we haven't seen him any idea that he would recuse himself also from any cases that, 
you know, perhaps touched on all of the, uh, you know, billionaires or business owners who he socializes with, who have taken him on vacation. So I just don't see him unless, you know, the court changes its rules somehow, which I also don't think will happen. I don't see him recusing himself. I just don't think that he, I think he is doubling down on the idea that, you know, he doesn't need to recuse himself. He doesn't need greater ethical transparency with what he's done. And um, I think that he'll continue that stance. I think that's right. He did recuse from a January 6th case that concerned uh, releasing the emails of a lawyer who'd been involved in in Trump's coup attempt. Uh, But it was his name was mentioned a lot in the emails and it was small potatoes compared to the stuff that's coming up. You know, we do have a couple of listener questions about the Colorado case, and I want to go back to that. Uh, Rodney says, what's the purpose of staying a court decision? Of course, this decision has been stayed to give the Supreme Court a chance to weigh in. Uh, Rodney says, does that mean that the judges feel they have a weak case? Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is very clear. Libby, do you want to weigh in on that one? I mean, I think they stand by their decision. I want to remind you that it was split four to three, but this really tosses it to the Supreme Court. It forces the Supreme Court's hand. It forces action. Um, And so the stay does mean that we could still see Trump's name appear on the Colorado ballot. But if the Supreme Court doesn't take up this case, or if the Supreme Court sides with the Colorado State Supreme Court, which is not likely, but, but, you know, it's out there, um, this would open the floodgates for a lot of other states where there have also been challenges to Trump's name on the ballot. So having the stay is sort of the least ripples in the pond, so to speak, and it lets the court system have the time to play things out. Does yeah. that signal anything to you, Arthur? Oh, it, well, they, it's, they, they're just like, whoa, hot potatoes, Supreme Court, please take this off our hands. And they know that they're just one of more than two dozen states where there are cases addressing similar question, and the Supreme Court ultimately will have to make the decision that goes for everybody. Another question about Colorado, this one from Jay in Oklahoma. How much legitimacy does each court have, referring to the Colorado Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court? Does it matter that judges on the Colorado Supreme Court face election or that five of the nine lifelong justices on the Supreme Court were nominated by presidents who lost the popular vote? Nancy, do you want to take that one? I mean, I think that the Trump campaign is definitely trying to question the legitimacy of the Colorado court. Um, you know, they, they're they saying these are all justices or judges, excuse me, that are appointed by Democrats. You know, therefore, the ruling is not, you know, no one should listen to it. I think that that is going to be a key part of their message. Um and I think that there have been so many questions about the Supreme Court in the past year, so many questions about, you know, the decisions that they made, how they ended up on the court, the ethical questions. Um, you know, it's been interesting because the past few years in politics, there has been such a uh, sort of skepticism and suspicion surrounding institutions. But I do feel like courts for many years were sort of left out of that and viewed as impartial. And as our political system becomes more and more polarized, that that we're seeing that now even show up in the courts where courts are viewed as like conservative or liberal. And that didn't used to be the case. Uh, some of our listeners may remember the Supreme Court wading into a presidential election and basically deciding the outcome in the year 2000. So it's not totally uncharted territory, uh, but they wear robes. You know, they're they're just calling balls and strikes over there. So as we head into the holidays, I want to take a quick minute and just a few more minutes we have left to look back on the year. It was a big year for news. And I want to ask each of you to briefly tell me what story or issue stood out to you most. And Arthur, since I'm looking at you, I'll start with you. 
I followed the uh, impeachment inquiry of uh, Joe Biden all year, and uh, you know I've become intimately familiar with the, the material Republicans are investigating. And this will really come to a head next year. We'll see if that if they can coalesce around accusations of corruption, which so far are incredibly flimsy. Uh, but they did close the 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 first session of this Congress with a lot of momentum. So it will be one of many super high stakes things happening in the in the uh, early part of next year. Libby, what was the biggest story for you of 2023? Well, I want to come full circle as we talk about people's faith in the courts and the president and everything else. And I want to highlight my colleague, Dan Baltz, the goat of the Washington Post, who's this year been reporting on how American democracy is cracking. And after really bumming me out, and as I report these stories on a hometown level, on a national level, and I see these fractures in democracy, Dan is ending the year by giving me some optimism and writing about ideas that could actually help repair our fractured culture and our fractured politics. And he starts out with an anecdote of a young woman who, after the 2016 election, was so frustrated and said, I want to fix gerrymandering. And you know what? She started to do it in Michigan. And so I'm going to be looking at this year how regular citizens, how people, journalists can help repair uh, some of the damage that's happened in our country and the divisions that have taken place because of our social media ecosystems, because of failing local news. And um, where are the areas and opportunities to actually find some solutions to repair democracy more? And Nancy, I'll I'll, uh, wrap up with you. Uh, Big stories for you. And also, what are you looking ahead to? Well, the big stories for me are, are, you know, I'm a political reporter, so I've been covering the lead up to 2024. Um, You know, I guess I've just been so surprised, uh, you know, replugging back into Republican politics after covering the Biden White House, that Trump remains such a dominant figure. I've spent the last year sort of going to rallies and and traveling around, and Trump really is like almost a cult figure still in the Republican Party, and they are just not ready to shake him. So I think it'll just be really interesting heading into 2024, essentially having a rematch of the 2020 campaign with Trump versus Biden they're two, uh, you know, older gentlemen, imperfect candidates. Everybody mm-hmm. sort of feels like they know a lot about both of them. And so it'll be really interesting to see how they try to court independence and, you know, the this tiny sliver of the American electorate that has not sort of made up their mind about where they stand on both of them. And also how they both turn out the vote, because that will be really key in these swing states. And that's really what I'll be looking for next year. And, you know, Nancy, I would echo a lot of that. You know, I'm a political reporter and I will be heading, maybe you will too, to to Iowa in a few weeks to uh, watch this all officially kick off and then on to New Hampshire right after that. Uh, And so the the primary season is about to get underway. And it's been such an unusual primary to cover with a, you know, a former president, the front runner in the Republican primary who is facing charges in multiple states of, on multiple counts, including uh, trying to overturn the 2020 election. I mean, what an unprecedented, we keep using that word, but what an unprecedented election this has been. I too will be watching uh, where the Republican Party goes from here and where the Democrats go. I mean, in many ways, we're teeing up 2028, seeing, seeing uh, potentially new leaders emerge and getting ready to watch this as you say, potential rematch of 2020. So, so much to look forward to. The Roundup will be back in the new year to bring you all of that news and much more. My thanks to our panel, Nancy Cook, Senior National Political Correspondent at Bloomberg, Libby Casey with The Washington Post, and Arthur Delaney at The Huffington Post. Thanks to all of you for being here. Coming up on the global edition of the News Roundup, 
Top U.S. officials once again state their unwavering resolve to support Israel and stand up to the threats coming from Yemen in the Red Sea. Here's U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in Tel Aviv this week. No individual, group, or state should test our resolve. EU leaders like European Parliament President Roberta Metsola hailed a breakthrough in talks on new rules to control migration to the continent. I know exactly what it means when we say that we have finally delivered uh, on uh, the migration and asylum pact, probably uh, the most important legislative deal of this mandate. We'll hear what critics have to say about the reforms. We also discuss the latest from Gaza. All that and so much more just ahead after this short break. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. It's the Global Edition of the News Roundup. Let's meet our panel. Zeba Warsi is foreign affairs producer on the PBS NewsHour. Hello, Zeba. Hi. We're also with Emily Tampkin, reporter and author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Thanks for being here, Emily. Thanks for having me. And here with me in studio, Alex Ward, national security reporter at Politico. He's also anchor of National Security Daily and author of the forthcoming book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Welcome back, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we begin in Gaza. Israeli defense forces continue their onslaught of the blockaded enclave. Right now, tens of thousands of people are crammed into shelters and tent camps in the south amid shortages of food, medicine, and other basic supplies. A U.N. report released Thursday found that 90 percent of people in Gaza are facing crisis levels of hunger and there is a risk of famine. Since the October 7th surprise attacks by Hamas on Israel, more than 20,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed. Two-thirds of those are women and children, according to the health ministry in Gaza, which is run by Hamas. Israel says around 1,200 Israelis have been killed, most on October 7th. More than half of the approximately 240 hostages taken by Hamas remain captive. Emily, I'll start with you. On Tuesday, the head of Hamas's political bureau was in Cairo for more talks on another possible hostage deal and a pause in fighting. What happened with those negotiations? Well, this was considered significant because Ismail Haniyeh, the the leader of Hamas, the, uh, the political wing, doesn't isn't thought to wouldn't have been thought to come to the talks had there not been progress. If it didn't seem likely that there might be another ceasefire, if if it didn't look like um, these two, you know, the conditions of the two sides could be bridged. Um, But what we've seen over the course of the week is that Hamas is essentially saying we want a permanent ceasefire, um, and that is our condition for releasing more hostages, whereas Israel is saying um, we are going to continue fighting until Hamas is eliminated, um, and their interlocutor on these negotiations is, is I mean, the other side of the negotiations is Hamas, right? So they're saying we're going to keep fighting until Hamas is eliminated. um, And it would be the number, you know, maybe we we pause for some days in in order to get hostages back. Um, So 
and, and meanwhile, right, people in Gaza continue to die. The hostages are still being held. Um, so that was that was this week in, in Cairo. Well, uh, Alex, as Emily just alluded to, the, the appearance of the Hamas chief Ismail Hania was seen as a hopeful sign. The last time he appeared in person was ahead of the first deal in November that involved releasing 110 hostages and a week-long ceasefire. Uh, Emily just outlined some of the issues, but can you tell us more about the, the key sticking points in these talks? Yeah, Emily you know, laid it out, I thought, quite well, which is basically you have the Israelis saying, no, we're not going to make any sort of deal here uh, until until we all agree that this will only be sort of a little break uh, in order to get hostages out, where you have Hamas saying, actually, the war needs to stop almost completely, if not totally, in order to get the hostages out. That's a pretty wide gap uh, between the two sides. I mean, again, to, for, for Hania to be involved in these conversations implies that gap is being bridged. But generally speaking, this is a this is a pretty big sticking point. And it was a sticking point in the first negotiation as well, right? Hamas, it is to their benefit to have the war stop. Uh, they're able to reconstitute. They are the weaker party in this fight for Israel and, and its backer, the United States. Uh, that would be, you know, it would not be a good idea because Israel's on the offensive. They're the ones trying to take general control of Gaza to securitize it in their minds. Uh, and then uh, Hamas would be on the run. So this is a bit of both a political struggle over just hostage deals themselves and also struggle on just actually how the war would be conducted overall. Zeba, what have we heard from the White House about this? Well, the White House has been, of course, trying to to change Israel's strategy of, of combat. Uh, we do know the Defense Secretary uh, went to Israel and also said that perhaps this is time for Israel to reascertain the way it's conducting its operations in Gaza and that that has happened after intense pressure across the world. The UN General Assembly unanimously voted uh, for a ceasefire at that time. Of course, the US uh, did not. But although the UNGA vote was not binding, it, it was symbolic of where the rest of the world stands as the death toll in Gaza is mounting. So certainly, uh, it is, it is as, as both Alex and Emily have pointed out, it, it is intense a period of negotiation. And from here on, where the war really goes is going to be very critical. This week, several world agencies and organizations addressed the issue of food shortages in Gaza. Human Rights Watch said, quote, starvation is being used as a weapon of war in Gaza. The World Food Program predicted, quote, famine. And on Thursday, a U.N.-backed report found the proportion of households in Gaza facing acute food insecurity is the largest ever recorded globally. Trucks bringing aid from Egypt have delivered some food, water, and medicine, but the United Nations says the amount of food is just 10% of what's needed for the territory's inhabitants, most of whom have been displaced. Zeba, I'll go back to you. What hope is there for any additional aid to reach Gazans right now? Well, Sarah, all eyes are at the UN Security Council if a vote is finally achieved today for a humanitarian ceasefire of some sort so that aid deliveries can be done at the scale that is needed to really combat the unprecedented levels of hunger and starvation in Gaza. As you've said, the latest IPC report places a majority of Gazans under phase four, which is emergency. So it's said that Gaza is at risk of famine. One in four households are facing catastrophic hunger. But beyond the numbers, what this really means is that Gazans, families who are surviving the constant bombardment and shelling and sniper attacks are at risk of starving to death. In the early phase of the war, we watched in horror and an alarm as long queues you know, were seen outside bakeries. We, we were speaking to families in Gaza who would say that they would queue for hours to get a loaf of bread for their kids, but then 
some days even go home empty-handed. But now that we've reached a point where there are no functioning bakeries, desperate families are seen crowding outside aid warehouses. There is simply an absolute shortage of food. Gazans we speak to sporadically whenever there is a brief period when communications are on. They tell us that they don't remember the last time they had a hot meal. A World Food Program study warned that people are resorting to consuming wild or raw food due to hunger. This week, Israeli Defense Forces admitted they mistakenly killed three Israeli hostages in Gaza City last week. All of the men were in their 20s. Here's IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conricus speaking to ABC News on Sunday. It is something that sadly can be expected of such a chaotic battlefield where the enemy constantly and systematically uses civilian clothing while they are fighting. And I think that is one of the root causes to uh, why this mistake happened. Emily, what more do we know about how this happened? Yeah, I mean, based on an investigation and, and the um, Israeli outlet Aretz published sort of the, the results of an investigation into this, everything that could have been done wrong was indeed done wrong, right? So the hostages had white fabric, a white, white sort of makeshift flag. Um, the soldier said, oh, well, I didn't I didn't really realize what that was until it was too late. Um, there was they had written out signs saying like SOS were hostages. Um, oh, we weren't really aware. Um, the commander had yelled, stop shooting. The shooting continued. So. You know, I I think that, um, oh, we can this can be expected to happen. Um, sure. But also this was the this, I think. Let me put it this way. In an interview with NBC, um, uh, Avi Shamriz, who's the father of Alon Shamriz, one of the three hostages killed, said, you have now murdered my son twice. You murdered him by letting this happen in the first place and letting him get taken. And then you killed him. And I think that I think, you know, it's important to remember that since this war started, since October 7th, there have been members of the government basically saying the hostages are not our first concern. And that has been Israeli government policy. Um, you know, and now people are, are Israelis are taking to the streets and there are protests. And, and certainly the families of the hostages have um, expressed their deep anger at the government, their feeling of abandonment by the government. Um, but but to say that the uh, first of all, if 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 you believed them to be civilians, that's still not an excuse for shooting them. Second of all, I mean, under the under international law and the laws of war. And second of all, um, you know, the IDF killed three Israeli hostages. There's no way around that. You know, Alex, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the killings, quote, broke my heart, broke the entire nation's heart. But has he indicated that this will mean any type of change to the military strategy? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, this is... Uh Israel has, has only been modifying in large part because the U.S. is putting pressure on Israel to change and there is some sort of global outcry. But as Emily pointed out, I mean, this the hostage part of this whole thing has oddly been secondary uh, for the Israelis. Uh, for them, the war is what matters most. Look at the hostages part of it. And they've been pretty explicit when they say you know, the only way to get the hostages back is by being very strong and having a strong military campaign against Hamas. So in this case, I don't think you'll see a big change, but there it does signal that there's massive pressure on Netanyahu, uh, right? The attack happened under his watch. There are still hostages under his watch. There are hostages being killed by the IDF on his watch. Uh, there are questions about whether he can sort of survive this down the line. Right now he can. But, you know, when this whole situation calms down, whenever that happens, there's going to be a massive inquest into his leadership and his future. 
The United Nations Security Council passed a resolution urging scaled-up humanitarian aid access to Gaza after multiple delays. The U.S. and Russia abstained during the vote, and all other members of the council voted in favor. According to Reuters, the initial draft resolution had demanded that Israel and Hamas allow and facilitate, quote, the use of all land, sea, and air routes to and throughout the entire Gaza for aid deliveries. That was changed to all available routes, which some diplomats said allows Israel to retain control over access. Philippe Lazzarini is the Commissioner General for the United Nations Relief Agency for Palestine Refugees, or UNRWA. Earlier this week, he spoke to NPR's All Things Considered after returning from Gaza. Each time is getting more desperate. Last time I went was on the eve of the truce. At that time, I have seen how desperate people were in the United Nations shelter. They were overcrowded. They were living in unsanitary condition, sleeping on the floor without mattress, without blanket. Winter is coming. And when I went last week, I thought that what I saw before was already heartbreaking enough. But an offensive has been expanded now in the south of Gaza Strip, mm. pushing additional hundreds of thousands of people to the south in Rafa, and we have today more than 1.2 million people across the Gaza Strip sheltered in our premises. Mm. These are not even shelters, these are schools, these are warehouses, these are health centers, but you have also hundreds of thousands of people now just living in the open. Zeba, why would you say has UNRWA been attacked by the Israeli government for not condemning Hamas? Well, that has been a bone of contention, and Israel has been critical, not just of UNRWA, but humanitarian, international humanitarian agencies overall. Uh, Remember, Israel has consistently said that the reason it has been operating around hospitals in Gaza is because it believes that Hamas uses hospitals as command and control center. But when we speak to medical humanitarian organizations like the MSF, that is Doctors Without Borders, uh, they said that their staff has never seen any evidence uh, to support that claim. Apart from that, all these other uh, uh, voices that come out, very stern uh, voices from the humanitarian community urging Israel to... uh, to, to be more lenient and to be more careful about civilians uh, in Gaza has not really gone down well with, with Israel because they do see um, the humanitarian community not condemning Hamas in strong words. Uh, at the same time, we are staring at a very large-scale humanitarian crisis in Gaza, which which uh, there are clearly no words to truly describe. We heard from UNRWA really explain the, the horrific scenes that are unfolding um, in, in, in the Strip as we speak. Uh, aid remains key. And in, in, in all of this constant back and forth and dialogue, what, what really is getting missed is that only two crossings, two humanitarian aid crossings are operational in Gaza. The Rafah crossing from Egypt, which was operational from the very beginning. And now, after negotiations with the White House, Israel has uh, agreed and has opened the Kerem Shalom crossing, which is uh, in Israel at the intersection of Egypt and Gaza. So these two crossings are now uh, operational and aid trucks have started entering in. But before October 7th, as per the UN, 400 to 500 aid trucks were crossing into Gaza each day. And even though we have two crossings that are operational now, less than 350 aid trucks have entered Gaza this week. So, um, the, you know, only a fraction of what is needed uh, is, is able to enter the Strip. Um, and having said that, the constant uh, back and forth and dialogue between uh, Israel and the humanitarian aid community is not helping the scenario. 
A listener, Hannah in Pittsburgh, has a question about something uh, Zeba just alluded to earlier. Hannah says, can you speak on the reporting by the Washington Post that they've been unable to find evidence to verify the claims by Israel that Hamas was using hospitals as command centers? Alex, I wonder if you can say anything about that. They found some evidence. Uh, They also found tunnels underneath, uh, you know, Al-Shifa Hospital and other hospitals uh, around uh, Israel and, and of course, throughout, uh, excuse me, throughout Gaza and then throughout the, the enclave. So there has been, you know, Evidence that has been that has been mostly provided by the Israeli military, right? There's um, there's been some independent reporting uh, of these instances. Um, the the real sort of question is, and it's hard to to gauge. The real question is, you know, how extensively were they used in order to like you know plan operations, launch attacks, etc. Um, the IDF, the Israeli forces, would say throughout, like that's that's what they've been used for. At a minimum, I think we can. Be clear that Hamas used them for operations in some sense, whether it's to maneuver and get out of Israeli sight, whether it is to just store uh, assets of any kind. And we already know that Hamas had been putting its own military assets and offices throughout the civilian population of Gaza. So it would not be com- wholly out of character uh, for, for, for Hamas to have that tunnels, et cetera, um, underneath those areas. And in fact, when you talk to experts of tunnel warfare, and believe it or not, that is a thing um, happening from the Vietnam War, et cetera. Uh, they would say just even by virtue of how to build the tunnels and the you know density of Gaza, even if, let's say, Hamas, for whatever reason, did not want to have tunnels under hospitals, it would just be hard. Or, of course, mosques or schools, et cetera, um, by virtue of just how tight everything is in the space. So to the main question, do we know if Hamas has been using it for military operations and planning? It's wholly unclear in that sense because we don't – you know, there's no evidence that they, they were there plotting and thinking through. But we do know that they are there and that they were used in some capacity by Hamas. I want to go back to the UN resolution for humanitarian aid into Gaza. The negotiations around this have been intense, especially after the U.S. vetoed an earlier resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. The U.S. said it was unwilling to support language referring to a cessation of hostilities. But they're now signaling they will support this resolution. And the BBC reports that the current proposal calls for the creation of of the conditions for a cessation of hostilities. Alex, I'll go back to you. What kind of pressure is the U.S. under to agree to a resolution of this kind. Pretty massive. Uh, Granted, the U.S. has a long, 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 long history of defending Israel um, at the U.N. for for myriad reasons. One is uh, there is a a feeling, I think, with with good evidence behind it, that the U.N. has not been particularly favorable towards Israel in the past. And the U.S. feels, of course, by virtue of its veto power in the U.N. Security Council, um, that it has an ability to to help Israel against some uh, unnecessary uh, targeting. Uh, in, in its view. But in this case, right, the U.S. Has, has a very staunch view that Israel has a right to defend itself after the October 7th attack, um, that while the U.S., and by that I mean the Biden administration, is putting pressure on Israel to provide more humanitarian assistance, open up the crossings, as Zeba mentioned, including the Karem Shalom crossing, uh, that it's, you know, that at the end of the day, this is still about Israel defeating Hamas militarily, which is a goal the U.S. shares, to be clear, right? So there is an alignment here. Now, on Tuesday, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced the creation of Operation Prosperity Garden. It comes after reports of ships traveling the Red Sea coming under missile and drone attacks from Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. In the Red Sea, we're leading a multinational maritime task force to uphold the bedrock principle of freedom of navigation. Iran's support for Houthi attacks on commercial vessels must stop. 
Nine nations, including the United Kingdom, Canada, Bahrain, France, Norway, and Spain, publicly announced their participation in protecting the shipping route. Alex, what is the strategic and global economic importance of travel through the Red Sea, first of all? Sure. So about 12% of global trade goes through the Red Sea. That's quite a bit. So if there were to be um, you know, major disruptions to that trade, it would lead to more prices at the pump. It would lead to higher prices for other goods. Uh, it is a genuine effect on you, the listener, on anyone, um, more so than, you know, it is, it is like it has a direct effect on, on anyone's life. Uh, the interesting thing now is, of course, you have a bunch of vessels worried about uh, traveling through that region, which is why they're going south under uh, Africa, near, you know, on the coast of South Africa. A much longer route. A much longer route, which is causing uh, costing more in time, about 10 days more travel time and millions of dollars, which is why there's also that increase in price. So this is a, a, a major issue. Also outside of, of course, the fact of danger to people and to shipping in general, it, it is um, a genuine threat on, on life and limb here. Um, so far, there's not been so much damage, but just by virtue of missiles flying at commercial ships, that cause that disrupts the whole concept of you know the free flow of trade and maritime trade. And about eighty percent of all trade happens on sea routes. So uh, this is a pretty big and disruptive issue. And remind us, Alex, what are the Houthis saying about why they're attacking these ships? What's their objective? So. Yeah, I mean, if I'll read you their slogan, which is God is great, death to the U.S., death to Israel, curse the Jews, and victory for Islam. I mean, that is what the Houthis want. Uh, now, granted, we when we talk about the Houthis, we usually talk about them in the context of the war they've been engaging with Saudi Arabia for many years. Uh, but the Houthis do have a global ambition. And they, in this sense, it is basically the eradication of Israel and, and, and hurting the United States. So, Israel's uh, war against Hamas, this is basically the Houthis' way of being involved. And we should note the Houthis are Iran-backed. And according to new reporting um, this morning by the Wall Street Journal, Iran is providing the Houthis with real-time intelligence in order to attack certain vessels in the Red Sea. So this is, I, I think we have to say it, even though the Biden administration did not want sort of a regionalization of this war and an expansion of it, if you have the Iranians helping the Houthis attack you know, vessels in part, or if not directly because of Israel's war on Hamas, this is a regionalization and an expansion of that conflict. Now, Emily, we heard Defense Secretary Austin name Iran in his statement about Operation Prosperity Guardian. So while U.S. and the U.S. and other members of this coalition want to protect ships moving through the Red Sea, what concerns are there about the possible fallout of a more robust response to these attacks? Well, this is, I mean, since the beginning, right, the, the concern has been that this spirals out of control, this becomes, this becomes bigger than Israel, Hamas, Israel, Gaza. Um, you know, for example, the United States could try to attack Houthi launch sites, um, but that raises the risk of regional escalation. And that's not necessarily something the United States, Iran, or even the Houthis want. But I think we've seen in the past that, you know, the... the um, the road to a wider war is is paved with um, uh, more limited intentions. So I think that's part of what the United States is trying to navigate now, too, right? How do you sort of um, contain this, stop it, stop the physical damage, the economic damage, without creating a, a still um, a problem that spirals even further out of control? On Thursday, the Pentagon announced the U.S. and China top military officials held their first talks, ending a nearly year-and-a-half impasse between the two militaries. According to U.S. officials, the two military leaders touched on a number of global and regional security issues during their online discussion. China froze all talks between the two in retaliation for then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August 2022. 
I want to turn now to the European Union. On Wednesday, the EU tentatively agreed to new rules that would overhaul its current migration system. The deal has been described as a breakthrough after years of disagreement on how to manage migrants and those seeking asylum. Now, the agreement isn't official yet. The 27 EU member states each need to approve it, as well as the EU parliament. So, Zeba, tell us more about this. How would the tentative agreement change the way that migration works in Europe? Well, Sarah... Anti-immigration sentiment has now gone on from being a fringe, far-right agenda to now very much mainstream in EU member states. So this particular deal has been reached after three years of negotiations between all member states in a block for a joint migration policy that will effectively reduce asylums and will also pave the way for faster deportations of migrants who get rejected for asylum. So it will effectively limit the number of migrants being taken into EU countries. It will also give governments a greater sense of control over their borders. Asylum petitions will be reviewed at the border itself. The idea is treating migration as a European issue and not just a national one, um, as some countries have felt the burden more than others due to their geographic locations, like Greece and Italy, uh, which receive much more migrants than other EU countries. This deal, uh, at least on paper, will effectively adopt a unified approach and evenly distribute migrants and asylum seekers. But at the same time, immigration rights groups argue that this deal does nothing to really save lives of migrants, especially migrants lost at sea. There's no provision on how to make routes safer, but the focus is on implementing a procedural framework which is unified to to manage migration, which undoubtedly has become one of the most pressing concerns for European countries, especially at a time when most European countries have have seen a rise of far-right politics. Now, Emily, we have to go to a break in a moment. But first, the the deal's not official yet, as we said. Why is this provisional agreement considered a breakthrough? I mean, okay, really quickly, um, as as Ava said, this has been three years in the making. uh, Immigration and migration has been and asylum rights have been a major issue in these countries in that time. Um, I also want to flag that EU parliamentary elections are coming up in 2024, and this is seen as an effort to stave off the rise of far-right parties in these countries, uh, really across Europe. I would also just flag that in the past, um, what this has done in practice is either sort of have, quote-unquote, mainstream parties assume far-right positions or has further emboldened far-right parties. So we'll see if this uh, breakthrough for the EU pays off or further emboldens the far-right. Next to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the country's presidential election was extended after reports of chaos at polling stations, voting officially ended yesterday. Some candidates say the election should be canceled, tied to concerns about voting fraud. What kinds of obstacles are voters in the DRC facing? Uh, irregularities, some some logistical issues in, in making that vote happen. The, the bigger thing I've been interested in uh, is, you know, should the current president you know, win re-election? He's already basically said, I'm going to start a war with Rwanda. Now, there's been a long going issue uh, between the two countries. There's been a rebel rebel group there, M23, et cetera. But that was sort of part of on the ballot. And so you had a lot of voters go and make the case to either, you know, whether they wanted to see that conflict, not see that conflict. But that was one of the actually big issues here, along with, of course, economics and other things. Um, so to have a bunch of voters go, you know, try to participate in their democracy, not have it come to fruition, as Ava said, was noting, uh, you know, a lot of frustration and just the logistical issues um, that causes uh, a lot of consternation and some and some bigger problems than, than were needed. Now, much further to the north, incumbent Abdel Fattah al-Sisi will begin his third term as Egypt's president after taking nearly 90 percent of the vote there. That's according to the National Election Authority. President al-Sisi has openly condemned Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Egypt affirms and reiterates its complete rejection of the forced displacement of Palestinians 
as this is nothing but a final liquidation of the Palestinian issue. Their exodus to the Egyptian territories in Sinai is an end to the dream of an independent Palestinian state. Egypt is in the midst of an economic crisis and trying to mitigate cascading effects from Israel's war on Hamas in neighboring Gaza. Alex, how do Egyptians feel about al-Sisi's leadership? I guess pretty good if they elected him in such large numbers. I mean, you know, if you are uh, an autocrat, 89.6 just seems too perfect. Uh, (laughs) Maybe so. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's just under 90, which is like sort of the autocratic famous number. So it almost seems like a a perfectly tailor-made number. But part of it was also the election was not uh, particularly open and fair. Uh, The major competitors to Sisi were not well known. Uh, There were allegations of having supporters be arrested, suppression of uh, of the vote there, uh, or rather suppression of the message. So in this case, you know, Sisi wins uh, because Sisi wins. (laughs) Now, granted, he has done some infrastructure projects. He has been, uh, let's say, uh, a pseudo-stabilizing force after uh, the you know Tahrir Square stuff, but he's a stabilizing force by 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 repression um, and uh, by by autocratic rule. Now this is his third and final term, so the real question after all this will be, you know, does he really sort of go beyond his mandate and really assert himself as the autocrat of Egypt uh, beyond sort of what was in this constitutional limits, or um, you know, does he really sort of did he rig it all in his favor to be in charge for this set of years and then he'll go quietly into the night? It's unclear at this point. One other note from the. Re- In Sudan, the paramilitary group Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, attacked the country's second biggest city. Zeba, you followed this story closely. What happened? Well, this is a very disturbing stage of the Sudan war. Uh, Jazeera state, which is the country's breadbasket with a population of 5.9 million people, has largely been untouched by the war, especially Wad Madani, as you said, Sudan's second most populous city after its capital, Khartoum. It was also a hub for humanitarian operations. So the fact that Wad Madani, which is believed to be the closest thing to a safe haven for Sudanese who who had fled Khartoum, seeking refuge, is now under siege by RSF. Uh, There are very troubling and disturbing reports that are coming out. We've been in touch with Sudanese families who were there, most of them had fled Khartoum and were in Wad Madani, and they're just describing horrific scenes of violence, constant bombardment, shelling. Uh, if you remember, dozens of orphan children from Khartoum were also evacuated to Wad Madani, and the orphanage director described how traumatized they are with the war reaching Wad Madani. So certainly this is a big turning point in the war, uh, which is going to be catastrophic for the residents of Wad Madani, as well as these internally displaced population that was seeking refuge in that city. And according to the UN, in the past week itself, more than 300,000 people have already fled that region to surrounding areas. Now on to Venezuela, which is exchanging prisoners with the United States in an unusual deal. This includes a man convicted in a U.S. Navy-affiliated bribery scandal, popularly known as Fat Leonard, as well as 10 other Americans. Some of them arrived back in the U.S. on Wednesday. So, Alex, remind us who Fat Leonard is. Oh, one of my favorite stories. A formerly Fat Leonard, by the way. Apparently he's now... He slimmed uh, down. He's slimmed down in shape Leonard. Uh, so Leonard Fra- Francis is a Malaysian national who... Uh, you know, allegedly, also somewhat convicted, bribed uh, a bunch of uh, Navy officers, roughly about 30 or so. Um, and basically with this company, Glenn Defense Marine Asia, what would happen is they would come into port uh, in places like Russia, Australia, elsewhere, and he would almost meet them on the port and go, hey, would you like some alcohol? Would you want to go to a nice party? We got some prostitutes, uh, you know, gave them a lot of things. And of course, they would go, great, love to be here uh, at this port, but serviced by his company. 
And then he would be able to overcharge the Pentagon. I mean, it effectively bilked DOD to the tune of around $35 million. Uh, so, you know, he was uh, put under house arrest. Uh, he had some health issues. He escaped. He took it off of his, he took an ankle uh, bracelet off, was able to eventually get to Venezuela um, to escape persecution. He's now going uh, to head back to the U.S. and face uh, trial. But one of the, if not the big, one of the biggest military bribery scandals in U.S. history and, and, and kind of all done because of his charisma and and savvy and to the point that there were some people you know who are very familiar with the case that said the level of access that he had to top uh, military leaders was a level of access that even like some KGB operatives would not have been able to pull off. I mean it was a truly astounding uh scandal. Well, he got all the big headlines for Obvious reasons. But who are these other Americans that are returning from Venezuela? Political prisoners, uh, you know, folks that were doing business in the area um, and frankly, you know, probably pawns in, in Maduro's game to put pressure on the United States. I mean, every, of course, person coming home, uh, it, it's, they're going to be happy to be home. Uh, but this was oh, this has been a long going issue for a long time. There were a, another set of American hostages that were released a few years ago. So this has just been an ongoing issue between the U.S. and Venezuela that they've been holding Americans, whether they're dual nationals or business people or, you know, quote unquote spies, et cetera. Um, two in particular stand out to me because I covered this um, story pretty closely. Two Green Berets who were involved in a, uh, at the time called Stupid Bay of Pigs, um, a kind of um, attempted coup of Maduro. It went so horribly wrong. Uh, and they, you know, they were effectively, if I recall well, you know, almost on a dinghy trying to go to the coast of Venezuela to overthrow the government, easily overtaken and put in prison. They have been, they are among the tenor that have come home, and that has been an effort ever since um, that operation went haywire. And Emily, of course, this was an exchange. So what, and I should say who, is Venezuela getting out of this? Well, they are getting um, Alex Saab, who is Maduro's financier, his his money man. And I think, uh, you know, the United States spent like over a year um, getting Alex Saab, and it, it was, this, was, this was sort of, um, you know, a, a judicial... I don't want to use the word coup, but a judicial um, accomplishment that they that, that the United States had him, and 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 the fact that they would trade him, I think, suggests that I don't want to I, I don't want to say it's just like um, Victor Boot for Brittany Griner in the in the case of Russia, but I do think the Biden administration has shown that it's willing to make sort of difficult decisions um, to get Americans back, and also in this case, just to further diplomacy with Venezuela. I want to circle back to Europe, specifically to the Vatican. On Monday, Pope Francis formally approved a ruling allowing Catholic priests to bless same-sex couples. The blessing is uh, allowed if it's not affiliated with a Catholic ritual or service. And in the ruling, the church clarified that this blessing is not synonymous with a Catholic marriage. Zeba, how big of a change is this for the Vatican? Well, I would say it is still significant as it is coming from the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, But as, as you said, the caveat is that it is only allowed under certain circumstances. The Pope said it must be decided on a case-by-case basis, and it does not relate to regular church rituals or civil unions or weddings. So the Vatican added that it continues to view marriage as a union between a man and a woman. So bisexual gay relationships are still considered sinful, yet uh, this move is being seen as progressive, uh, especially by priests who are friendly to the LGBTQ community. They say that it is a good start. And since the Vatican announcement, they've been fielding requests by same-sex couples for priests to bless 
bless their relationship. Yet conservative Catholic bishops in various countries, especially in parts of Africa and Asia, have objected to this change, underscoring the divisiveness on this issue in, in, in the global church. In a rare move this week, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi sat down with the Financial Times for an interview. In it, he downplayed the diplomatic impact of a U.S. indictment last month, which claimed an Indian official directed the attempted murder of a Sikh separatist on American soil. Alex, what exactly did Modi say about those allegations? He said, you know, the government has nothing to do with it. This has been the Modi government position for a while. He's also spoke about it for the first time saying, look, we're going to look into all these allegations. We're going to look into what happened here. Um, But this has been uh, a a major issue really cropping up. And, of course, these allegations came after uh, a similar allegation in Canada. Uh, So basically you have allegations that the Indian government is trying to kill, um, you know, opposition leaders uh, or, you know, figures, let's say. On foreign soil, and it would show a brazenness uh, beyond what Modi's already doing in India uh, in his own crackdowns there. Um, it would show a, a global repression um, scheme and, of course, assassination plots. Again, all alleged, uh, but and it's unclear how involved Modi government really was uh, or is. But it is uh, a troubling development nonetheless, and one where you have, I would say, the Canadians being harsher towards Modi, and right now the American administration, the Biden administration, um, being a little more uh, lenient in this case, saying they've talked tough with New Delhi. But at the end of the day, uh, the U.S. wants India to be a counterweight to China, and so don't, doesn't necessarily want to ruin that relationship over these allegations. Now, Modi, who is 73, will be seeking a third term in office in polls due early next year. His Hindu nationalist BJP party is widely considered a favorite. But this week, more than 140 Indian opposition politicians were suspended from parliament, the largest number in history, after protesting a recent security breach at the parliamentary premises. Emily, what sort of reaction has this evoked? Well, I wanted to sort of just one extra thing on the... um on, on what you were discussing with Alex, which is that it, it's sort of funny to me that he that there was an uproar when Canada said you've you've done this, and then when the U.S. called it out, it was oh these are just sort of minor diplomatic dustups. And I think this shows what Modi will be facing going into 2024, which is trying to walk this line of global statesman um, outside of India, but within India. Modi has found, as you say, the BJP is a nationalist party. He has found it very productive politically to say, I'm the one who's, you know, um, quashing dissent. I'm the one who's taking care of security threats. And so I think we're going to continue to see this balancing act in 2024. Now, in terms of what happened in the parliament, um, yeah, the opposition is already saying this is an attack on democracy. Uh, the BJP is saying, well, these these members of parliament were, were disruptive. Um, you know, I, I don't, I think those of us sort of watching democracy worldwide would say it's not um, (laughs) not a positive development to see 140 members of parliament um, suspended, you know, even even if they are being disruptive. Right. um, Heading into a general election year. Seba, what can you say about the way that these allegations have affected U.S.-India relations as these two powerhouse nations try to counterbalance China's influence? Well, for sure. I'll get to that, uh, Sarah. But before that, just to add to the whole parliament approach story, I've, I've covered the Indian parliament closely for years. And this is, you know, this is not new. Opposition candidates, opposition parliamentarians disrupting the flow of house and them being suspended. But the fact that 140 lawmakers were suspended on a single day and barred from attending the rest of the winter session, at the same time, the government went on with its uh, with its business and 
ended up passing three crucial bills and most of them controversial bills without uh, most a majority of the opposition even being present in the house so all of this is just so unabashedly done um and as one opposition lawmaker said this is the murder of democracy in india which is a clever uh, play at modi uh, modi uh, which i found funny but at the same time uh, going back to your question about the allegations that first canada placed and now with the indictment in the us certainly places us india relations under troubling waters uh, remember the year began with the bank for modi with with a, with, a, with an official state visit uh, president biden ruled the red carpet for narendra modi it, it really played very well for him domestically as mm-hmm. well and that is where india us relations were at at the beginning of the year as the year closes while modi said in his ft interview that us india relations are still strengthening and this does effectively indicating that this does not cast a shadow uh, but clearly this has raised serious concerns about mm-hmm. what kind of friends US wants to have and we'll leave it there a big thanks to our panelists this hour Zeba Warsi with the PBS News Hour reporter and author Emily Tampkin and Alex Ward of Politico My kid is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Kellen Quigley. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, D.C., distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon. Happy holidays from all of us on the show, and thank you so much for your support this year. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.